dive deep into the blockchain realm with the Protocol Podcast with Coindesk founding editor of the Protocol Newsletter, Brad Count, and tech journalists, Sam Kessler and Margot Nykirk. They unravel the intricate technologies powering cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, one block at a time. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hello and welcome to the Protocol Podcast. I'm Brad Kahn here with my co-hosts Margot Nykirk and Sam Kessler. First, please do not forget to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Protocol, on Coindesk.com. And now let's dive right into it with the latest news and developments in technology behind crypto and blockchains. And we're first segment, we're going to be talking about Ethereum's censorship problem. Sam, this was a story that uh, you wrote yesterday as our feature for the Protocol newsletter. Super interesting. I mean, high-level topic, blockchains. People think of these as as networks that are free of censorship, or at least that's a, that's a lot of the the talking points behind them and maybe what the promise is that it's not going to be governments or banks or whatever deciding who gets through. But your story showed something else is happening, Sam. Why don't you tell us about it on Ethereum? Yeah, you hit on the the main theme here, which is that blockchains are kind of viewed as the, the phrase that they use is credibly neutral. The idea being that governments, companies, regulators, so on and so forth are are unable to censor, like block, or even treat transactions from one party differently than from another party. At least that's kind of the the idea. And that's just not how things have broadly worked out as a result of regulations and as a result of um, specifically government sanctions. So basically what this article is about is when Tornado Cash, that you know uh, Ethereum mixer program used to hide where transactions are from and to, was sanctioned by the US government last year. There was a trend which we covered where some of the operators of the Ethereum blockchain started blocking certain sanctioned transactions, transactions that touched that Tornado Cash program in accordance or in accordance to their interpretation of the government sanctions. And that problem has, it seems, after getting a little bit better, gotten a little bit worse. And it all has to do with how Ethereum's block building apparatus works, which is a confusing. You had some percentages in your story about kind of what we're seeing, and which I think was kind of like the news of your piece, right? What was what? What did that show? Yeah. So what we're seeing now is that seventy-two percent of blocks that are assembled for MEV boost, which is a program used by all the validators or virtually all the validators, more than ninety percent that run Ethereum. 72% of these blocks that go through that program are coming from block builders who censor, in the interpretation of uh, one of our interviewees, or, or filter transactions affiliated with Tornado Cash, presumably to uh, avoid running afoul of OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control. I thought this was really interesting because like, we spent a lot of time, I think, last fall talking about this when these sanctions happened and there was like an Almost like it seemed like it was like so existential in like crypto Twitter, especially like in the Ethereum communities. But I wanted to like ask you, there's this disconnect, right? Because you do go to some of these censorship monitoring websites. Like I'm thinking of MEV Watch Info and I and I just logged on to it and they're saying here like, oh, it's only like 33 percent. 
because it's on the relay side. So like, how do you square, how do you explain this to people that, you know, on the one hand, when you're monitoring this stuff, it doesn't seem, it seems like there's been this improvement, but on the block builder side, you're talking about a different story. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great question, Margot. I, I think there's two pieces to it. So the first piece is this, this problem, if you want to call it that, of quote unquote censorship has, like you've mentioned, shifted from one party to another. It used to be relayers, which is some class of operators on that MEV boost program. And now it's shifted to builders, which is a different set of operators on that program that are, are, are quote unquote censoring. And to, to really tackle this question requires explaining at a high level what MEV boost is. And what it is, and I know you've written about it too, is it's this program designed to optimize the blocks that validators propose to Ethereum so that there is maximum or maximal extractable value rewarded to validators and other operators within the ecosystem. And all that is maximal extractable value, MEV, it's this thing where you can preview upcoming Ethereum transactions and then profit accordingly. Front-running transactions, back-running transactions, adding transactions right after a transaction is about to hit, and so on and so forth. So that's what the MEV Boost program does, and it's cemented this whole layer of operators on the Ethereum blockchain before transactions actually hit the ledger. And that's the most interesting part of this story, in my view, which is like, there's only a few parties that are actually running this program that are running the entirety of, of Ethereum. That's really interesting. I guess this like brings us into the, this next scope of what you wrote about, about this like block builder side. Talk to us a little bit about like what this landscape looks like. What does this mean for in terms of, is Ethereum just in the hands of like a multiple, a couple block builders basically? Yeah. So there's a big concern in the Ethereum world that the chain is becoming more centralized because of this thing, MEV. So the way that Ethereum works at a high level is when users submit transactions to the chain, it used to be, um, and it still is, that they go into this, this pool of yet-to-be-processed transactions called the mempool. And then validators, the operators who stake Ethereum and run the blockchain and validate transactions, they go into that mempool, scoop up transactions, and add them to Ethereum in a block. And they get the, uh, uh, you know, the corresponding fees and Ethereum rewards. Now that's all been messied. It's been made way more complicated by MEV because when transactions go into the mempool, MEV boost swoops in. So a marketplace of builders are the ones who are outside of the blockchain, not doing this on-chain, but off-chain, looking at the mempool and then scooping the transactions into MEV-optimized blocks and then handing those blocks to Ethereum, to its validators, through these things called relayers, which just do that handoff. And mm -hmm. so builders, relayers, those are two. And then there's these things called searchers that kind of snipe these MEV opportunities. All three of those new roles are kind of opaque. It's hard to see exactly what's going on there. And there's only a few parties that are running those new layers of the blockchain. And they have a ton of influence over what kinds of transactions make it on chain because block mm -hmm. builders now are the ones, not validators, deciding if your transaction gets added to the next block, meaning you can get certain transactions slowed down or, or more expensive if there's quote unquote censoring. I'd just like to go further into this. I wonder from your reporting, you've talked you talk to some really cool people in this piece who are like, who are very, it seems like very knowledgeable and very passionate about this topic. What, in their opinion, if you talk to them about this, like still needs to be done to sort of fix this issue? 
And where is this going? Like, what are they most concerned about if this continues to go down? Where it's yeah, going? so censorship and, and centralization are top of mind for Ethereum's core developers, Ethereum's builders. And Vitalik Buterin, the, the co-founder of Ethereum, he has put a big focus on this problem in the roadmap that he proposes and periodically updates that kind of serves as a, a sort of guiding post for Ethereum development. So there are certain updates there that are meant to address this. One is something called in-protocol. Well, it, it refers to in-protocol proposer builder separation, which is this set of updates that could bring essentially what MEV Boost does onto the Ethereum blockchain. Another thing that we're seeing is private mempools. The idea being that instead of submitting your transaction to a global Ethereum mempool, you submit it to a private pool of transactions that can't be censored or filtered or so on. But this um, specific update that, that I just mentioned goes into why this is so hard to tackle because it does move Ethereum's problems elsewhere. So if, a, if you use a private mempool, you know, now you're probably paying a fee to somebody. And so you mm -hmm. get middlemen just like you had in Web2. Or it makes things more opaque. It's pretty transparent for all transactions to go, you know, to the same mempool. And that's frankly not happening now. There has been a big shift in, in favor of these private mempools to get around these MEV problems of censorship, centralization, and so on. It's, mm -hmm. it's really interesting. Yeah. You know, it's super interesting. You have these ideals, and then you start to really dig into the details of what's going on. And you do find how different things are actually from those ideals. And you have to really, really get into it and understand it to kind of start to see, okay, yeah, there's centralization there. You know, it's like whack-a-mole, right? Also, new episodes of centralization will pop up as new things come along. But I think that's pretty interesting. And it's not just on Ethereum. We've been covering this story this week about what's happening on Bitcoin. Of course, this, the ordinals inscriptions that has some people love, you know, it's people, they talk about it as NFTs on Bitcoin, but it's created a lot of congestion and a lot of the core hardcore Bitcoin maxis really hate this stuff. And so there was one mining pool. It's, it's Jack, the one that's backed by Jack Dorsey that just raised a ton of money run by uh, this guy, Luke Desch Jr. is kind of the um, the leader figurehead there. But they were trying to get rid of these ordinals transactions, but they call it spam. And they've changed the tweak on their mining pool so that it avoids, uh, they use this, this implementation called knots instead of the usual Bitcoin core that actually filters out at what they call a spam. So you know, it, some people would say that censorship, they call it spam filtering, you know, so it's just something that all these blockchains are facing. It's kind of centralization hunting is what we're doing here. All right, let us move on to the next topic, which is, Margo, you were at this conference this week and yesterday at Columbia University, their blockchain conference, and there were super pretty list of high heavy hitters there what, what, what tell us about that conference yeah so uh i went to the first day of the columbia crypto economics workshop it is 
organized by the Columbia Engineering School, I believe, alongside with the Ethereum Foundation. So this is the second year running, I think. Last year, what I heard was that it was a lot smaller. It was like 50 or so people. This year, I don't have the exact numbers, but I'm in the Telegram group. It's like there's about 230 people in the Telegram group. So it's grown. But there's a lot of it was really interesting. I only went to the first day. The second day is today. Like it's sort of the at the intersection of crypto and blockchain technology as well as academia. So a lot of well-known industry folks who, you know, do research, who teach are at this conference and they're giving lectures to some pretty like hardcore blockchain Ethereum, like Ethereum focused enthusiasts. I think they tried this year to make like some emphasis on not just Ethereum. Like they had someone from or they have someone from Solana who's there today. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. It was like I felt like I was back in school because you just like they just sitting there all day long listening to like different lectures for like an hour and a half, you know, and then you can get up and ask some questions and you have like a 20 minute break. But it's like pretty serious. Like it's pretty like hardcore. And who are some of the key people there, Margo? Well, okay, so I pulled up the agenda From the Ethereum Foundation, I mean, I spoke to Justin Drake for a little bit. He's helping organize it. It says Danny Ryan's on this. I wasn't able to talk to him. I also didn't run into him, so I can't confirm or deny he's there, but he's on the agenda. I trust that that he's involved in it. There was, you know, there's Ed Felton from Offchain Labs, the, you know, developer behind uh, Arbitrum, Ben Fish, who's the CEO of Espresso, which, you know, is look into decentralized sequencers. That's also a bit like a bit of a hot topic right now. I spoke to Sriram from Eigenlayer. He spoke a little bit about restaking. Who else? Ari from Chainlink, who's who's teaching at Cornell Tech as well. He's the chief scientist at Chainlink. And then like I ran into like some folks who like won't work at the EF, uh, Block Native. I spoke to some folks. Starkware, I ran into someone I knew there. So yeah, there's some pretty hardcore people. And like even just the presentations itself, like it's not like your intro to blockchain kind of lectures. It's like, you know, there's complex equations. And I, I have no math background. Okay. Like I, I look at this and it's like a little bit gibberish to me. But yeah, it's it's definitely not for the week. But it was really cool. It was really cool because you get a lot of like FaceTime with these people. Um, and it's still quite small. So whoever's listening. You want to come next year? I highly encourage it, but like, please don't make this too big. You know, like I, I love having that <laughs> right. like, time. Success so could be the biggest killer. Yeah, yeah, if you're listening, like, great, come along, but don't <laughs> tell your friends. Don't tell your friends. Did you get the sense that there were any specific topics that people were super interested in this year? I know, like, at all the conferences I've been to, it feels like there's always like some theme like last year a lot of these conferences were all about zero knowledge before that there was a bunch of stuff about scaling layer twos generally was there anything like that i have to say i've only went to day one day two today and i'm not really planning on going so i can only speak for this one day i would say like zero knowledge was not a topic this year i think that we've like moved past that in this phase of where we are in ethereum restaking i think when it comes to sequencers like a lot of activity that's happening sort of around the l2 space also, MEV is still of interest. The infrastructure layer, things like that, were were a bit of a, a focus for day one. Now, I'm curious, did anybody talk about the price of any of these assets? Um, no. At this technology conference? No. I, Economics. Like, I, I didn't know. I, I actually didn't hear anything about price itself, which is interesting, right? Because they have crypto econ in the name. 
but yet Mm -hmm. it's the engineering school that's like that's working alongside it you know it's not like the economics department at columbia though again i don't speak for columbia i don't didn't really talk to anyone who's organizing it from the columbia side so overall i have noticed that there's a little bit more of a lightheartedness when it comes to the crypto space because of these you know prices that are bouncing back up i spoke to some folks and they were like yeah it's been like a rough six months with winter but i feel like over the last two weeks like people have started to ask me just generally again about crypto so you know there was like a little bit of a like a cautious optimism um going around yeah. I mean, <laughs> maybe it's just th- holidays, you know, maybe we're just in holiday mood and everyone's happier. So, <laughs> well, I mean, one of my talking points is, you know, blockchain is the only, is kind of the only technology maybe in history. Uh, this is probably not true, but I mean, in recent history, that has had its own market for speculating on itself. You know, usually it's Wall Street speculating on every other technology that's coming along. Here you have crypto speculating on crypto. And so you have these people who are super hardcore programmers and entrepreneurs trying to build these projects. And yeah, there's this like crazy crypto market that's just sort of happening around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's like if we were if we were in biddle season during crypto winter, maybe you know the 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 focus starts to move away from them as people just start to you know focus on price go up. But yeah, at any rate, all right. Well, let us take a break there. When we come back, uh, we are going to have a fascinating uh, recap of some of the some of the tech blockchain tech people that made it onto CoinDesk's most influential package, which was so cool and published this week. Uh, We'll be right back. Calling all developers. Consensus 2024 is happening May 29th through the 31st in Austin, Texas. Experience three days of intensive learning with technical talks, 40 plus expert speakers, and 20 or more in-depth workshops, including dedicated half days for Ethereum and Bitcoin. Don't miss the opportunity to network at curated developer meetups, discover new career opportunities, and explore numerous side events and hacker houses around town. Score a Consensus 2024 developer pass for just $109, but act fast. Only a limited number of these passes are available. Visit consensus.coindesk.com now to secure your developer pass before they're gone. Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. I want to push back slightly on the idea that cash, the value of it, I mean, that's what FX markets are about, right? Is like arbitraging differences in cash value. And there's a whole gigantic market around currency exchanges. And so I think there that we do see trading that happens in cash. But to your point, you know, the use of cash as a means of payment, etc., is pretty robust and sticky as a concept. And I think the joke is always, you know, if cash didn't exist, no one would invent it. But hey, it, it does exist. And so that's the world that we're in. Look, there is a crypto angle in this. Our job is not to sit here as either geopolitical or conflict resolution commentators, but it matters to everybody, every human being. Given how horrific this story is, the fact that there was an order to shut down crypto accounts used by Hamas and that Binance came in to cooperate with that, of course, is yet another negative story around crypto. 
take the frame from wherever you want to take it. But by remaining silent about bad actors in our industry, about criminal behavior, about terrorists, about whatever it is, and just focusing on the topic of our show, but I mean this more generally, by remaining silent, we are complicit. You heard what she had to say. Go out there, call spades, spades, stand up for what is right. Like just, it's time to to stop shirking the responsibilities we have. And it's just time to just stand up for what's right. Listen to Money Reimagined every Wednesday on the Coindesk Podcast Network. You can subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. And welcome back. We are going to jump right into our Protocol Village segment, talking about most influential as Coindesk Magazine Managing editor Ben Show, I wrote this in the protocol <laughs> yesterday. So just uh-huh. remembering that I wrote it. It's a list, not a ranking. People are like, hey, why is he first? You know, uh, but at any rate, it's a list, but there are some people who are at the top of the list. That is true. But at any rate, um, Margot, Sam, both of you actually spent quite a bit of time writing profiles for this and it is a huge effort by coindesk every year led by ben schiller he does such a good job of of, or with daniel kuhn they do such a good job of putting this together but at any rate the list starting off with casey rodarmore who is you know we were just talking about the ordinals he was he was kind of leading that charge and uh you know, it was such a big innovation on uh, Bitcoin. But, you know, a lot of these, the people that we chose to profile in this package are not surprisingly the people who are sort of attached to some of the year's biggest themes in blockchain. Well, Sam, you did a couple of the profiles. Who are some of the couple of the people that you profiled? So one person and one DAO. One of the people that I profiled was Martin Kopelman, who's the head of um, Gnosis Chain, co-founder of Gnosis Chain, which is a side chain to Ethereum. And he's a pretty vocal, I, I guess, proponent of the Ethereum ecosystem, but also critic of uh, certain trends in its infrastructure, specifically, you know, tying back to what we were talking about earlier today, he was quoted in my piece about the uh, censorship problem and MEV. So he's a big, you know, um, blockchain sort of like idealist, one of these people who came at things from like, you know, first principles around credible neutrality and stuff and has gained an audience as a result. Then the other person um, or or people that I profiled were the Lido DAO, the token holders of the LDO token, which is Lido's token that are the governance body behind that organization, that protocol Lido, which is the biggest um, if you want to think of it as one staker, the biggest single staker on Ethereum pulls together a bunch of Ethereum, stakes it onto the Ethereum blockchain, and then spreads that stake between a bunch of different, you know, infrastructure operators. And as a result, has gotten about thirty-two percent, I think, is where we're at now of all staked ETH. Which I think you alluded to this earlier, Brad, is a scary number. But the Lido DAO has decided not to cap that 32% to 33% or, or anything, the, the point at which they can start kind of muddying with how the chain operates. So that's why that was one of our most influential. Just to take a quick, you know, a lot of the people, a lot of this most influential list is people, right? And here we were talking about the DAO. Mm-hmm. Do you have any any kind of the backstory on that decision yeah. to, yeah. 
So in this specific case, the reason why we opted to put an organization on here is because in the sort of blockchain world, it does feel like these DAOs, these sort of, in a way, amorphous, you know, groups of people are having a ton of influence and more influence than any particular individuals in Mm. how the ecosystem operates. And the reason why I think it's interesting is because like, you know, in reality, there are individual people or big companies that do sit at the core of some of these DAOs because they hold a lot of tokens. But it is interesting to kind of nod towards this new sort of, if you want to call it a corporate structure, governance structure, and so on. It's a nod to how that space is developing, maturing. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to to see a sort of like Citizens United of the crypto world at some point as we try to figure out how we think about these blobs of people and whether they're individuals. Anyway, it's kind of just a nod to that. And this was one of the most influential ones for sure. Margo, let's go over to you. Uh, Who were a couple of the profiles that you did for this package? Yeah, I wrote about Jesse Pollock, who is the head of protocols at Coinbase. He's basically the figure who has led the team Coinbase to come out with their base layer two network, which was you know, we've talked about it a bunch on the show that it was it's the first time a crypto exchange has come out with a layer two. And that sort of started another trend, right? We've seen that with Polygon and OKX coming out with their X1 chain and Kraken, which is, you know, supposedly coming out with their own. So he's had, I think, a major influence in terms of bringing this new sphere of, of builders and innovators to the space. And, you know, tied with that, Carl from uh, OP Labs was also featured and he's the CEO of, like I said, the OP Labs, which is the developer behind uh, the Optimism blockchain. And they've come out with technology called the OP stack that's, you know, that base is built off of. So those two are sort of tied together. It's a two-way story. Like Jesse is, you know, credited for bringing this new, these new faces to the blockchain, but also Carl is the, is sort of the face of of providing that technology so that these exchanges can go on chain or Coinbase can go on chain. That was two of them. And then the third one was Jordi Bellina from Polygon, who sort of credited with spearheading their efforts for coming out with their uh, zero-knowledge EVM. You know, just kind of tying back to our earlier discussion you know, regarding the Columbia Conference on people talking about things now that may become the hot topics in 2024, right? And if you rewind and think about Vitalik and the folks at Ethereum Foundation laying this layer two scaling roadmap, right? And then this year it happened, you know, mm-hmm. and it was, it's just like, we see these things in, in blockchain where it's just like, it just starts and then it's just <laughs> mushrooms, yeah. you know, and now we have so many of these layer twos all of a sudden. I don't know. Any any insight into that in any of your profiles? I mean, I think we're not done. Like personally, I think we're not done with this layer two discussion. Like, yes, what we were getting at, like last this time last year, there was a lot of conversation on zero knowledge, even a little bit earlier than this time last year, so maybe a year and a half ago. But I think this is just the starting point. Like I think, well, Jordy on my list is the only one that is related to the zero knowledge topic. And he emphasized that like, this is just the beginning. We're going to see an explosion of ZK. And I think he's right. Like, I I do think he's right. And I don't think he's just saying that because, you know, he works at Polygon and has to say that. But 
base and the optimism blockchain, I mean, I like it'd be interesting. They have their own set of issues that they have to deal with um, when it comes to, you know, bringing vault proofs to their uh, blockchain. But I think it'll be interesting to see where where their projects go as zero knowledge uh, chains become more and more like improve over time and become more used. I don't know, Sam, what are you what are you thinking? No, I agree with everything that you said. I do think that we're still kind of in the earlier days when it comes to these layer two protocols, because at their core, and and if you kind of um, Google Google them, it's starting to come up more front and center. There are a lot of elements of this infrastructure that remain centralized. Um, there's sequencers, you know, relayers, just the way or lack of the, the way they do fraud or fault proofs or the lack thereof in some cases. A lot of these ecosystems are still kind of shells or proofs of concept or MVPs, minimum viable products. And yeah, the tech itself still really needs to mature, even if we're not talking about it. It's just going to take time for it to get there and for people to feel comfortable enough with the security in order to allow it to you know, actually go to users because real money is going to go into these systems. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, just to wrap it up, I wanted to ask though, like it's, we don't like to predict the future, but I guess if you had a feel of who would make the list next year, like who might it be? Because I will say that, you know, the top of the list was the guy was about Bitcoin ordinals, right? And that happened pretty early on in 2023. That was like January or February. I don't know. It felt like it was like the beginning of the year. So if, you know, we're looking at this year ahead, like who, like what do you think as of now could change? could still, you know, make it into that next year's list? That's a good question. <laughs> I think that we might see some industry people, sorry, some legacy financial industry people on the list. Mm-hmm. If these ETFs um, earn approval, yeah. I mean, I don't know if this is as much a technology thing as it is just like a, a general note. But yeah, if these ETFs earn approval, which is expected between January 5th and January 10th, we'll, you know, see some big finance CEOs on sure. that list. It's funny. Also, just looking forward, it, there's always that joke that the Forbes 30 under 30 list is, is kind right. of cursed because so many people go to jail on it. I don't know who on this list is going to go to jail. Hopefully nobody. But if you look at last year's list, I mean, CZ, uh, what CZ might have even been on this year's list, but like Sam Bankman Freed, hopefully it doesn't become something like that in the crypto world. This right. most influential list. That's another forward-looking observation. Yeah, well, we have Caroline Ellison on the list this year, right? Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> Sentencing's coming up in, in March. She did cooperate, yeah. so. Yeah. We should wrap it. But, you know, a couple big themes that we do know for sure is, number one, there's going to be a Bitcoin halving. And, you know, that's often kind of like year two of a four-year bull market cycle, or at least that's what it's been in the past. So, you know, we may see tons of crazy stuff pumping in crypto and that could change. Who knows how that's going to play out? I mean, we know how unpredictable this space can be. Uh, And then second, there's a presidential election in the United States next year that is going to be not only affecting crypto policy, but just, you know, kind of the whole mood of the whole world um, will be kind of interesting. You got a little flavor of that at the Republican uh, debate Eight. last night, but <laughs> but at any rate, it should be quite an interesting year. And you know, the other thing we probably know for sure is that these blockchain technologies just not you know shows no signs of slowing down. At any rate, thank you all for joining us today. Thank you, Margo. Thank you, Sam. Thanks to our producer Michelle Musso. 
who makes us sound good in this in the background and that is it for this week thank you for listening to the protocol podcast if you have any questions or comments or story tips please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com subject line the protocol you can listen to us weekly on coindesk podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts also please subscribe please please subscribe to our weekly newsletter it's really good sam wrote a great feature for it and that is usually the case sometimes margo writes it uh, but it's always really good. You should subscribe the protocol newsletter on coindesk.com. See you next week. Thanks a lot.